0: Well, friends, we are continuing on through our series in the book of Romans. Romans, as most in the room know, was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, the saints that made up that congregation. Romans, as we've considered before, is a remarkable letter. It's unusual in length. And it is the most comprehensive and systematic presentation of Christian doctrine contained in all of Scripture. Paul writes the letter to instruct the saints, both Jews and Gentiles, in the doctrines of the faith. Paul concludes his greeting of the letter by saying that he is eager to preach the Gospel to the saints who are in Rome. That leads into his great announcement that begins the body of the letter. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, he says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul then explains how the gospel in which God gives righteousness to sinners is the only hope that fallen man could ever have. This is because everyone is under sin and no one will be justified by works of the law. But in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, bears witness to it. It's the righteousness given to sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. This was always God's way of salvation. Jesus suffered and died in order to make satisfaction for the sins of his people and to endure the law's curse. Jesus perfectly fulfilled all of the law's requirements in order to be his people's righteousness. It is in this way that the gospel in no shape or form overthrows the law, but the law is upheld and honored because of the work of Christ. When it comes to applying the work of Christ to sinners, it is by grace, not merit. It is by faith, not works. Just as it was with Abraham, it is with all of the saints of God. Paul then makes plain that our present justification has given us peace with God now and forever. We will most certainly be saved by Jesus Christ. God's love for us is astonishing. And it's been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And God has done all of this in the face of our sin. And in the face of our enmity toward Him. Paul concludes his teaching on justification, how it is that a sinner would be found just in the eyes of God. He concludes his teaching on that by showing how covenant representation has always been God's M.O. from the beginning. Adam represented us all. His sin counted to us as our sin, his guilt as our guilt. And likewise, for all those who are united to Jesus Christ by faith, His righteousness is counted to us. What we receive by faith in Christ is greater than what we lost in Adam. When it comes to the law, it was given actually to increase the trespass, to show us the sinfulness of sin, to show us the depth of our corruption. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It abounded all the more, by the way, through the person and the work of Christ. Righteousness and eternal life are ours. Redemption has been accomplished and redemption has been applied. Which brings us to Romans 6. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and begin turning there. Paul has argued beautifully and comprehensively for the doctrine of justification. Justification, of course, by faith, grounded in the grace of God, realized through Christ alone. And he's now going to demonstrate and prove the inextricable connection between justification and sanctification in the life of the Christian. He begins to do this by anticipating an objection. Given the doctrine that he's been expounding, should we just continue in sin? If grace abounds all the more, where sin increases, should we just sin? His answer is, by no means. His reason, as we considered last week, is that we have been united to the Lord Jesus. By no means should we continue in sin because we have been united to Christ. Paul's appeal is completely to the believer's union with Christ and also the believer's new identity in Christ. The sanctification of believers rests on the same foundation and comes from the same source as our justification. Christ and Him alone. We're now going to look to the text. We're going to consider pointedly verses 5 to 11 of Romans 6 today, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, because this is all of a piece. This is the Word of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. We thank the Lord for his word today and every day. My plan is simple. I have two rather lengthy points or two parts, however, that Works better in your brain. We're going to reflect and apply the text as we go. The first point or the first part of the message so, number one is dead to sin and alive in Christ. Dead to sin and alive in Christ. We're going to be looking at verses five to seven for the next little bit. If you put your eyes on verse five, we see that we have been united to Christ. Again, that's not new for us. We've been thinking about union with Jesus. But we have been united with him in his death. And so, says Paul, we shall certainly be united to him in his resurrection. Now this is referring in an obvious sense to our final bodily resurrection. Christ lives glorified. We'll live forever. So will we. That's what's immediately in view. And it is right For us to understand that even now we share in Christ's resurrection life. We have a new spiritual life in Him. It's a life that we did not have before. We did not have this life before we were united to Christ in faith. And it is the same power by which Jesus was raised from the dead that is at work. In us. It's in work in us now. Our union with Christ in his resurrection from the dead applies to our lives now precisely in that sense. This is an Ephesians 1 reality. That the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the immeasurable greatness of God's power, is at work in those who believe. We do not continue in sin because we have been united to Christ. And being united to Christ, we have the very power of God at work in us. This is Paul's argument. Verse 6, our old self, literally the old man, was crucified with Jesus. We know this, says Paul. I have been crucified with Christ, he writes elsewhere. It's no longer I who live, Christ who lives in me. Because believers are one with Christ and are represented by him, we died with Christ on the cross. His death is counted as our death. Our old man, meaning our sinful, corrupt nature, was crucified with Christ. This is in order, says Paul, that the body of sin, meaning the old man, the corrupt nature, might be, your text might say brought to nothing, literally might be destroyed. And would no longer, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So through our crucifixion with Christ, through our union with Him, through His death in our place, We are delivered from bondage. Verse 7. Paul grounds what he has written in this. He says, For one who has died has been set free, literally, has been justified from sin. In other words, the one who has died with Christ has been justified from sin. Compare this to Acts 13, 38, and 39, where the same word shows up. Understand, when Paul writes, we've been set free from sin, this is what he means. Acts 13, 38, and 39. Paul is preaching in Antioch. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed, there it is, from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. We are united to Christ in his death, and in him, this is the key, we died to the guilt of sin. We are no longer under its curse. In Christ you've been set free from all of the things from which you could not be freed according to the law. We have indeed been justified from sin. And this changes everything. Let's continue to think and reason with the Apostle Paul on how justification for the believer and sanctification for the believer hang together. In justification, we are absolved of our guilt, the guilt that we have for breaking God's law. And we are given possession of perfect obedience to the law. How does this occur? We know because Paul has taught us through union with Christ by faith, through Jesus being our representative, that's been his argument throughout and even more pointedly from Romans 5, 12 on. It is precisely union with Jesus that Paul is driving home in chapter 6. You can see it. Verse 3. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism. Verse 4. If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Verse 5. We know that our old self was crucified with Him. Verse 6. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. Verse 8. Far from encouraging believers to sin, justification by grace through union with Christ is what ensures that believers will walk in newness of life. We will walk in that newness of life all the way until we take possession of our eternal inheritance. On the very same ground that the doctrine of justification is established, the doctrine of sanctification is also established. This is Paul's argument. This is his refutation of the objection raised in verse 1. Continuing to think with Paul, it is the curse of the law that keeps sinners under the power of sin. This curse is the penalty for disobedience and it came upon us in Adam. It means, the curse, it means that we're cut off from all communion with God, naturally. It means that we are in bondage to the evil one It means that we are given up to sin. It means that sin reigns over us and exercises absolute dominion. That's what the curse means. But Jesus, right? But Jesus has canceled that guilt. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He has clothed us in his own righteousness. And so there is no longer any obstacle. And by any, we mean any obstacle to our communion with God. Consider, what is the state of the believer? By state, I mean the condition of the believer. We are united to the one who has the fullness of the Spirit as a branch united to the living vine, think John 15 language, as a branch united to the living vine necessarily partakes of the vine's life, so sinners, when they are united to Christ, partake of the life that is in him. The moment that believers are brought into union with Jesus, which is precisely how we're said to be dead to sin, the moment that were brought into union with Jesus. At that very moment, the source of sanctification is opened up and the streams begin to flow. We receive an abundance of sanctifying grace from the fullness of our Savior. As Robert Haldane wrote, it is impossible that the streams can be dried up when the fountain continues to flow. Amen, somebody. It is equally impossible for the members not to share in the same holiness which dwells so abundantly in their head. Saints, we are one with Jesus who is the fountainhead of holiness. This is is how justification and sanctification are inextricably linked. They can't be pulled apart. This is why those who are dead to sin can no longer live in it. This is the force of Paul's argument. The believer's sanctification rests on the objective reality of the believer's union with Christ. And that is a foundation as solid as the rock who is Christ himself. And that is a foundation as stable as the steadfast throne of God. Beloved, remember, the Christian life is a given life. We live from our justification not for it. We live from salvation received, not chasing after it. We live from eternal security in Christ, not in pursuit of it. Eternal security, assurance in Christ is the essence of the Christian life, not the pursuit of it. Our life is status forward, justified forward. It is identity forward. In Christ, that's our identity. We live from that. The Christian life is always because of, not so that. We don't battle sin and pursue holiness and do good works in order to be justified. We don't do these things in order to actualize our justification or to maintain it. We don't do these things in order to know that we're justified. What a comfort that is, by the way, in the midst of daily life, in the midst of the ongoing battle against the flesh. We do these things. We battle sin and we pursue holiness and we do good works because we are justified. We do these things because we have been united to the Savior and He is at work in us. It is indeed impossible for streams to dry up when the fountain continues to flow. And streams, beloved, they only flow one direction. They don't flow uphill. When it comes to our sanctification, Christ is the only source. Getting this right is of critical importance in the church. If we don't get this right regarding sanctification, we will be pointed back in on ourselves somehow. It's inevitable. It will be about our discipline, or our sincerity, or our performance, or our affections. You fill in the blank. For many, this will destroy any possibility of peace. It robs the saints of any Possibility of assurance. For others, it will fan the flame of self-righteousness and pride. For all of us, though, know, it affects the culture of a church. The ethos, right, of the thing. There will be less gentleness, less patience, less compassion, Less charity. Less of a willingness to play the long game. And thereby, the church is not as safe as the Lord means it to be. Real. Here's the thing too. Real sanctification is hindered. Because this understanding of the Christian life that makes a church safe fosters and leads to real sanctification, not whitewashing your life. Beloved, all I have is Christ is not only true on the front end of our Christian life. It is true throughout the entire thing. And as our church increasingly has a collective sense of that, All I have is Christ. That was true the day I trusted him. It's true today. It will be true at the end of my life when I'm taking my dying breath. It will be true when I stand before him. The more we have a collective sense of that, it will be a joy to watch and see what the Lord will do. That's all under point one. So now we move on to point two, part two. The life of faith. The life of faith, verses 8 to 11. More here on our union with Jesus. Imagine that. Paul says here, now if we have died with Christ, we will also live with Him. Eternal life and bodily resurrection are again in view here. But notice how Paul writes. What I just said was not entirely accurate. He says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe. Don't miss that. We believe that we will also live with Him. We believe, meaning Paul, the other apostles, and all the saints of God. We believe. Consider this. Everything of which Paul writes here is a matter of faith. The hope of our bodily resurrection unto eternal life is a matter of faith, not a matter of present experience. Our spiritual life in Christ is also a matter of faith. Many saints have made this observation. But consider the words of Martin Luther. Our spiritual life is a matter not of experience, but of faith. No one knows or experiences the fact that he lives spiritually or is justified, but he believes and hopes this is so. Why does this matter? That this is a matter of faith and not your experience? Well, because our Christian life now, today, and the certainty of our eternal life with Christ is not grounded in what we feel. It's not grounded in what we experience. Our Christian life today and the certainty of our eternal life with Christ is grounded in God himself. And it is grounded in Christ. It's grounded in fact, objective reality, that Christ gave himself for us, that he is our righteousness and is our peace, that we have been made one with him, and that he will bring us to himself, that where he is we may be also. It is grounded in the knowledge that in the meantime, Christ, by His Spirit, works in us to conform us to His image. And while it is true that we are weak, frail, distracted, while it is true that we are bruised reeds, Christ will not break us while it is true that the flame of our faith and love is often just a flicker, Christ will not snuff it out. In fact, he will nourish it until he has brought judgment to victory. I hope this lands on you as really good news. Because if our Christian life, let alone our eternal security, is grounded in what we feel, God help us all, we may as well leave. Don't get me wrong, we want to feel it, amen? We want to feel it. It is wonderful when we do. We grieve and lament when we don't feel like we should. We pray and ask God, help me, give me grace. I don't feel about the things of God the way I should feel. I don't hate my sin as I should hate my sin. I don't love you. Like, I want to love you. I'm not as grateful as I want to be. God, help me. That's all true. And it is a great comfort to know that we are justified, that we are being sanctified, and that we will be glorified because of Christ alone, not because of our feelings, not because of our experience. As has been said by preachers before me, do not ask me what I feel. Ask me what I know. Ask me what I know of Christ that can help my soul when my feelings vacillate by the minute. That can help my soul when my circumstances are anything but stable. Verse nine, put your eyes there. Paul says, we know, there that is again, that Jesus, having been raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. By implication, the same is true of us in Christ. Consider the writer to the Hebrews. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Though we will die, yet shall we live. I am the resurrection and the life, says Christ. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. And when He returns... We will be with him, we will be like him. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3.4. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3.2 and we will never die again. This is our great consolation. In Christ's resurrection, we are assured of the effects of His death. Meaning, in Christ's resurrection, we are assured that He has satisfied God's justice and that He has made atonement for our sins. In Christ's resurrection, we are also assured that if our Lord and our head, to whom we are united, if he has been raised to eternal, invincible life, we also will be raised to the same kind of life. And it is this eternal assurance that is the ground of our living now. You see, we live from the end of the story backward. We have to. May the Lord, this is why Paul prays what he prays in Ephesians chapter 1. May the Lord give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. So that we might know the hope to which we've been called. So that we might know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And so that we might know the immeasurable greatness of his power that's at work in us. May God grant that to us. It is the ground of our living today. Verse 10. Paul is going to ground verses 8 and 9 here. He says, for the death he died, the death Christ died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. It's really important. Studious observers in the room may have already caught this. If you put your eyes on verse 2 of Romans 6, you see that Paul makes the same declaration about Jesus in verse 10 that he makes about us in verse 2. Same words. Jesus, verse 10, died to sin. We, verse 2, have died to sin. Now, important here as we're thinking about how to understand this. Given Paul's argument of union with Christ, that what's true of him is true of us, right? That's the argument. Whatever the assertion means, in one case it means in the other. It is clear. Why does this matter? Justin, why? Let's think together. It is clear that Jesus did not die to sin, as though at one point it had power over him, leading him to commit sins. That's not at all what it meant, that he died to sin. No, he died to the guilt of sin. In particular, he died to the guilt of our sin, which he had taken upon himself. Though Jesus had not committed any sin personally, our sin was counted to him so that it truly became his. It truly became his debt. And he died to settle it. Once and for all, he died to settle it. It is finished for all of his people, for all of time. And so we also have died to the guilt of sin in Christ. It's important. Paul is going to write of the effect of our having died to the guilt of sin in verse 14. That's where we're going next week. Paul is going to write of the effect of our having died to the guilt of sin there. It is there that we learn that sin will not have dominion over us as a result of what Christ has done. Paul's argument in this section that we're looking at today is that free justification by faith in Christ is how believers are dead to sin and justified from it. Free justification brings believers into a completely different state than they were in before. We now are in perfect fellowship with God. And having been delivered from sin's guilt, believers will, as a result, be delivered from sin's dominion. In other words, believers will be sanctified in Christ. Put your eyes on the second half of the verse. Jesus died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. He lives to God's honor, to God's glory, to God's praise, eternally. Again, I'm going to quote our brother Robert Haldane. He says this, keep in mind, the great end of all of life is what? That God would be glorified. That God would be honored and praised. Here's Haldane. He says, Christ's eternal life in human nature will no doubt more than anything else be for the glory of God. Consider that. Christ's eternal life in human nature. God the Son took on flesh and has a body still. He will forever. He took on flesh and accomplished the salvation of His people. He became a man to represent men. And the fact that he will live eternally, not as a spirit, but he will live eternally with a human nature, with us, his inheritance, is to the redound of God's glory and honor and praise. Verse 11. Paul infers from verse 10. that we must also consider, that word could be rendered reckon, we must reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So this, verse 11, this is an exhortation. You must do this, he says. It's a big exhortation and its connection to what follows in verses 12 to 23 is also very significant. We must reckon ourselves dead to sin, dead to its guilt, free from its curse, free from its penalty, free from its condemnation through the law. As we stand in Christ, the law has no more right to condemn us then it has to condemn him. That's a thought. Knowing ourselves dead to sin in that way, beloved, is a great help in the pursuit of obedience. It's not a hindrance. The more that we're convinced that the sins of yesterday no longer curse us, no longer stand over us as a record of wrongs, have been atoned for and satisfied for, the more we realize that we are free from that in order to pursue righteousness. We don't need to make atonement for the sins we've committed. Christ has handled that. We live today by faith in Him and pursue what He says is good. We must also reckon ourselves alive to God in Jesus Christ. This is our blessed state. Alive with Christ and one with Him. A good way to summarize verse 11 is this. Given the truth of what Paul has been writing of our union with Christ and how we are dead to sin and alive to God, we can rightly say we must hold fast to this confession. You see, if we don't, if we don't reckon ourselves, this way, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, if we don't hold fast to this confession, we cannot serve God as we ought. If we don't hold fast to this confession, we will most assuredly be serving God in the old way of the written code, not in the new way of the Spirit. It is only in holding fast to this confession, union with Christ, we're dead to sin and alive to God in Him. That we can serve the Lord as we should. Our blessed and justified state on account of Christ alone is how we consider ourselves. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree That, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Hebrews 9, 14. How much greater is Jesus than what came before is the context, right? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? When we keep Christ in view, we cultivate the spirit of adoption that we have received. We joyfully strive to honor the Lord. We joyfully strive to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. We have peace in our hearts and we have hope in our souls. We strive to run after righteousness, and we strive to flee from sin. Paul exhorts us in verse 11 to cling to Christ, to cling to our salvation in Him. This is the entire ground of our Christian duty. That's where we're going next week. You understand how significant that is for us. Because we tend to think that our identity is derived from what we do. Not so in the Christian life. Our duty, what we do, is derived from who we are. For now, suffice it to say that the way of sanctification is by believing in Jesus Christ. Of having Christ ever held before us of having our gaze fixed on Him. How is it that we will be strengthened in the Christian life? Consider the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. Chapter 16, verses 25 and 26. Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to... Right, how, Paul? Paul? According to what? Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's something. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been known to all nations. According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and to the preaching of Christ. Amen. How are we strengthened? Through the gospel and through the preaching of Christ for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. Acts 20, verse 32. Paul says to the elders in Ephesus, and now I commend you to God And to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And then there's Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and following. Consider this passage of being alive in Christ. What that means. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Don't buy into all these things people are telling you to do for godliness. Don't. For in Him... This is true of us. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. justified from sin, right? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Beloved, it is Christ for pardon. And it is Christ for power, for pardon from sin, and for power unto godliness. Only Christ. We are free from sin's curse. Free from its penalty. Free from its condemnation through the law. And we now live in Christ unto God's honor and glory and praise. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. May it be so. Let's pray.